A date which will live in infamy. Both of those projects, initiatives, got off the ground because of the Gare out of the 24 who were killed were Americans who had come to learn in Kevin. I say one million Jewish children who were made to be cut in Whoever heard such beautiful words, It is never too little, it is never too late, and it is never enough. Jewish History Soundbites, bringing alive the world of our glorious past. Here is our host, live from Jerusalem, Jewish historian and tour guide, Yehuda Geberer. Everyone, two Jewish History Soundbites. This is Yudi Geber with another episode of Jewish History Soundbites. And this episode has been generously sponsored by It's Good to Know with Rabbi Manus Friedman. Rabbi Friedman is currently the rabbi with over 2 million hits on one YouTube video. So be sure to check him out. He's the one who's making waves in the online Torah world. It's also sponsored by, with its, you know, just another few days to the election. We can't wait anymore. And Teach Coalition is reminding us to make sure to return your ba- mail ba- mail in ballot or to vote early or to go to the polls next week on election day. If you have any questions or need help with your voter plan in New York, New Jersey, Florida, or Pennsylvania, you can call or email Teach Coalition's voting expert at 201 937 8442 and http at org or visit teachcoalition.org slash vote. Every vote counts and it doesn't matter which candidate it's for. It's not about the candidates, it's about getting out there and voting in Teach Coalition, the community's advocate for fair government funding of non-public schools is encouraging everyone to vote and wisely so. They're not the only ones and remember a story with Ramesha Feinstein, actually, who uh, suffered under, uh, um, like many Jews at the time, under the Stalinist communist Russia, where it wasn't exactly a free democracy that allowed voting and uh, for many years, and he only arrived in the United States in 1936, and once he became a naturalized citizen, he always utilized his opportunity to vote, and uh, he's not someone who is, you know, heavily involved in, in the politics, and Again, it didn't matter which candidate it was, and I don't think he ever you know, made a big deal about which candidate it was, but it was the idea of doing his civic duty in voting. And he used to say that he does it out of out of gratitude to, to a country that allows freedom and religious freedom and allows Jews to practice their religion. And he himself had experienced living and residing in another country, in communist Russia, which did not afford those freedoms. It's something he didn't take for granted. And, uh, you know, people who didn't have Ramesh's experiences grew up um, with the with all the opportunity and the land of opportunity. So they 
know, we sometimes do take it for granted, and it's good to have the reminder of Rabbi Meisha Feinstein to never take anything for granted and to go out and um, vote. But we go back to, before communist Russia, we go back to czarist Russia, even before czarist Russia, actually, um, way, way back, we're going traveling a few hundred years back today to um, to uh, um, to Ukraine, to Russia, of the Magid of Mizrich and the role of the Magid of Mizrich and his court and his students in the development of the Hasidic group of the Baal Shem Tev towards its transformation into a mass movement the Hasidic movement. And that's what we're going to talk about today, Rabbi Dov Ber of Mezrich and the Magid. And um, he himself, Rabbi Dov Ber, he grew up in Lokach in Ukraine and he later became a Magid and in, the, in the town. It's all in the same general area in Volin, in, uh, not far from where the Baal Shem Tev, the district that he was, which was called Podolia, different areas, you know, different uh, names. And he later lived in a town called Rovna. And, but he passed away the last months of his life. He lived in a nearby town called Anapol. And he passed away in Anapol, and that's where he's buried. So when we go with the groups, um, and hopefully we'll go again one day with the trips, we go to Anapol, to where the Magadim is rich, is buried. And uh, it's together with a couple of his very famous dis- disciples, like Reb Zisha of Anapol, and there's also Reb Yehuda Leibakoyen, and we'll get to that also. Um, the Magid starts off, of course, not as a chassid. He lives uh, during the generation of the Baal Shem Tov himself, and there is no Hasidic movement yet. And he was a capable individual, and he studied under the Pnei Yeshua, Rabbi Yeshua Falk, the, uh, the, um, the great Pnei Yeshua, was a Rosh Hashiva at that time in Lvov, before he moved to Germany and became a rabbi in Frankfurt and other cities. So, so the Magid studied under him. He was a student of his. The Magid was a prominent uh, Paisik and Talmud Chacham, and he was also a bit of a mystic and was very heavily involved in Kabbalah, and he used to, you know, do all kinds of uh, holy things and fast and 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 and, uh, and uh, all kinds of uh, kabbalistic activities like that. And it adversely affected his health. In fact, he had he remained something of a lame or almost like a cripple his entire life. He wasn't able to, he had you know feet trouble with his feet, and um, which had a decisive influence on his. Lifetime, number one, because he actually came to the Baal Shem Tev to seek a physical healing to his ailments. That's the reason he ended up at the Baal Shem, Baal Shem Tev, we know, was, besides for everything else, he was a doctor by profession. He, he was a Baal Shem. He was someone who helped people feel better. And um, that's why the Magid originally came to him, to be able to to have, you know, get, to ha- seek his advice. How can, how, how can he, you know, fix up his feet and his other physical uh, ailments, and he was taken in by the Baal Shem Tov, as of course, there's, there's of course many, many legends um, explaining how that happened, which I'm not going to get into, um, but he quickly becomes the primary Talmud of the Baal Shem Tov. And, and um, what happens is, is that with the Baal Shem Tov passes away in, in 1760, there is no Hasidic movement. 
Um, there's a, you know, a, a group of followers of the Baal Shem Tev, mystics, uh, the new, uh, following the new ideas in Avedis Hashem and the service of God that the Baal Shem Tev had taught to various different students in different cities. It wasn't even a specific place. The Baal Shem Tev was a bit of a traveler around the countryside. So there's no movement. And somehow, over the next couple of decades, there it became a movement. And a lot of that had to do with the activities of the Magid. So I want to jump ahead to the year of the Magid's passing to point out something interesting. The year 1772, several things happened that were to have a major influence or even a minor influence, some major, some minor, on the future of Hasidus, of the Hasidic movement. Number one, the first thing that happens in March, April, around Pesach time in 1772, the first op- organized opposition to the movement. The first cherem is written, the first organized opposition, and it emanates from Vilna with the instigation of the Vilna Gain, which we covered in another episode, much earlier, a while, way back, about the, uh, the organized opposition to the Hasidic movement, which the opening volley uh, takes place in 1772 uh, from the Vilna community led by the Vilna Gain. And, um, and it's, 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 it continues in, in Brod, in the city of Brody, in Galicia, and a couple of other places. Um, that's the first thing. And the Magid of Mezrich is still alive at that point. Um, the second thing that happens is on the geopolitical scene, and that's the first partition of Poland. That doesn't have a decisive or major influence on the future of the Hasidic movement, but it definitely has an effect because, because of the first partition, it's not no longer all in the Polish kingdom, but the areas of Galicia are now in a foreign country. They're in Austro-Hungarian Empire, whereas Volyn and Ukraine and Rysen, the White Russia, Belarus, and Lithuania end up in Russia, in Tsarist Russia. So it's a new government that has to be dealt with. It's no longer the Polish kings and noblemen, but it's the Tsarist government or the Austro-Hungarian uh, government based in Vienna. And it's also different countries where, where it's spreading to. So that also influences the spread of the movement, to, in a, for, at least in a limited extent. Um, and then the third thing that happens is the Magad himself passes on. Of course, on Yutes Kislev, which later becomes famous as the day that the uh, Magid's beloved and youngest, uh, one of his youngest students, the Alter Rebbe, Reb Shneir Zalman of Liadi, the founder of the Chabad dynasty, he gets released from Tsarist prison many years later on Yutes Kislev, and he, in his letter that he writes to another prominent student of the Magid, the Kedusha Slavier of Levi Yitzchak of Bardichev, he writes, that he found it to, to be an ominous sign, an ominous, a, a good sign, that he, um, that he got released uh, uh, from prison on the day of the yard site of their great teacher, the Magid of Mizrich. So the, the, the Magid, so it's, 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 a, it's the new Jewish year. It's, of course, uh, no longer Tafkuf Lamed Beis, it's Tafkuf Lamed Gimel, but it's still the year 1772. Um, it's in December, it's all the way at the end of the year. So the, the, that takes place in that year as well. Once we're on the topic of the Magid's Talmidim, so it's interesting to note that two other uh, events happened amongst the students of the Magid of Mizrich in that same year, 1772. So all these things collectively together 
really um, combined to to take a, a new direction for the whole movement. Rabbi Shmuel, one of the most prominent and earliest and prestigious students of the of the Magad of Mezrich, Rabbi Shmuel Shmelke Horowitz of Nicholsburg, he leaves Eastern Europe, and he had been a prominent rabbi, town rabbi, communal rabbi, um, in, in Eastern Europe, and, and, and he and his brother, Pinchas Horowitz, who later becomes the rabbi in Frankfurt, and he writes a very important uh, sfarim, the Hafla and the Makne, and many other sfarim, the Panim Yafis, and other, other sfarim that are popular and well used till today. So the two of them were, grew up in, in a little town in, in, in uh, Galicia called Chartkev, and they, and they, um, and, and, and Rav Shmelka becomes the rabbi in various different towns, and, uh, and he takes a position in Nicholsburg, which was in Moravia. It's in, basically in Germany. It's uh, far away, west. Uh, so he is, he's, you know, far from the scene of where Hasidus is spreading, uh, beyond the year 1772. Um, and so he, that, that's, that's another event that happens. And the, and finally, uh, another prominent, very prominent Talmud of the Magid, Reb Aaron of Karlin, known as Reb Aaron Hagodel, the great Reb Aaron of Karlin, who's today most famous for, uh, writing the words to Ka Echsaif, the very popular, uh, Shabbos song that the, you know, the composition, the tune is, is, is of much later, uh, development, um, Within the Karlin Hasidic dynasty, but the words were actually written by Rab Aaron Hagadol of Karlin. Beautiful words and very popular and well used till today. But Rab Aaron of Karlin had much more, much, many more greater, greater accomplishments than just writing a song. So he passes away at a relatively young age, uh, during the year 1772. And that's important because Rab Aaron Hagadol of Karlin was the first one to bring the ideas of the Magid, the ideas of Baal Shem Tov, Hasidus, and a Chatzar, an active court, Hasidic court, into Lithuania. Karlin was a suburb of Pinsk, and he brings it into Lithuania. In fact, in the early Cherims, in the early proclamations from Vilna and other towns, and also in the, uh, in the correspondence with the Russian government, so the Hasidic sect is, is uh, a cult, they're called it the sect, or the cult, the Kat, they refer referred to often as Karliners. They, they, the Hasidim were called Karliners because the ones that they knew from up close in Lithuania were the followers of Rav Aaron of Karlin and later his student of Shleim of Karlin and after he was killed it went to his son Rav Asher of Stalin and later the second Rav Aaron of Karlin but that's a story of the Karlin Stalin dynasty, which we'll hopefully get to another time. But in any event, so they were known as Karliners, and the and and they were on the forefront of the uh, battle between them and the uh, Misnagdim, the ones who were opposed to the Hasidic movement. So that also happens in 1772. What's important to understand is that the um, the Magid was never appointed by the Baal Shem Tev. And he has a very interesting role in the development from a chabura, from a small group around the Baal Shem Tov to what eventually becomes a mass movement. Um, the, the, uh, the, 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 when the, when the, so let's take a step back. Um, the Baal Shem Tov had many Talmidim, many students. And, and it took, it takes several years before the Magid is, 
is seen as the largest and most accepted uh, of the Talmidei Habal Shem Tev, of the students of the Baal Shem There was others who were active at the same time, of Pinchas Akaretz and Rabbi Yaakov Yasef of Polonoya, the, the one who wrote the uh, first Sefer of Hasidus, the Toldois Yaakov Yasef. There was Rabbi Nachman Mendel of Premishlan before he moved to the land of Israel. And there was there were other active uh, Talmidim of the Baal Shem Tev at the same time as well. And simply the Magid became, and he emerged over the course of several years, probably they said that the Baal Shem Tev passed away in 1760, so it was probably by the mid-1760s, 1765, 66, 67, that the Magid emerged as the most prominent and most accepted uh, from the the other active Talmidim of the Baal Shem Tev. And the reason that the Baal Shem Tev did, did not uh, appoint... The, I'm sorry, the reason that the Magid did not inherit the leadership of the movement from the Baal Shem Tev because the Baal Shem Tev did not found a movement and there was nothing to inherit. And that's, uh, that's uh, you know, simply a, a, a misunderstanding. There are all kinds of legends, of course, uh, that he did and that the Baal Shem Tev did appoint him or that the Baal Shem Tev's son appointed him or that other people said that he was appointed, but it's hard to substantiate any of those uh, legends. And what simply, uh, it was simply a function, uh, and I think it's, you know, to the Magid's praise that he emerged like that, and it was, it was, uh, it became obvious that he was the leader. He emerged as a natural leader. Um, so that's uh, an important, uh, idea, uh, in fact, worth, uh, emphasizing. Now, the, there's a lot of firsts in the, what we attribute, what we uh, identify with, with the Hasidic movement till today. That really started with the Magid and not with the Baal Shem Tif himself. Uh, for instance, the Chatzar, the Hasidic court, the Aliyah Laregel, the traveling to the Rebbe, the going to the Rebbe. And very possibly that the reason it was like that by the Magid, and which was not by the Baal Shem, the Baal Shem would travel around very often, and he would go to different places to teach. The Magid was, like I said, he was, a, you know, a lame. He was crippled. He couldn't, he couldn't walk around. And the only way to get to the Magid was to come to him. So people were coming to him, so he established the Chatzar, the first, and became synonymous with, till today, with the Hasidic movement, it started with the Magid and might have been on a technicality. And we have a fascinating testimony of the Chatzar of the Magid by someone who left, not only did he leave the Hasidic movement, if, if he ever joined, it's not really clear that he ever adopted it. It seems like he was just visiting. Um, but he left uh, traditional Judaism altogether. He became a philosopher, and he lived in Germany. A fellow by the name of Solomon Maimon, and he wrote a memoir later on in life, and he included in it that in his youth, when he was a teenager, he went to Mezrich. He speaks about how the centers of the uh, um, the new Hasidic movement were in Karlin and in Mezrich. You know, it's another point worth emphasizing is that several students of the Magid um, who who uh, started their own courts and their own following and their own their own chutzer, their own dynasty? They started in their rebbe's lifetime, Rabbi Avram of Kalisk, Rabbi Aaron of Karlin, and uh, and uh, and a few others, Rabbi Mendel of Vitebsk. Um, they and possibly others. They they began leadership in the, in in the Magid's lifetime. So it's another angle. But either way, so Solomon Maimon visited about the, the Magid's. Uh, Court and he speaks, and this is someone who is distant and and very often in his memoir, you know, with a certain animosity towards traditional Jewish life. 
And yet, when he speaks about the experience of being by the Magid, he describes the holiness and the impression that it made on him and how the Magid uh, wove together an amazing Torah discourse um, on the spot at the Shabbos table and how everyone felt and understood how he meant, uh, you know, he, as if he was speaking personally to them, a very, very powerful testimony um, coming from that angle um, about the, the Aliyah Laregel and the Chatzar of the Magid. All kinds of halachic uh, chumras, stringencies that came to be associated with the Hasidic movement also originated in the Magid's court, such as the the new Shechita knives that came to be used and were mentioned so often in the uh, Cherems against the Hasidic movement. Possibly even the custom of Hasidim not eating, Hasidim not eating gebrucks, um, matzah that came into contact with liquid, uh, seems to have originated in the Magid's court as well. So in which we can say that the Baal Shem Tov may have eaten gebrucks. And so... You know, if you want to say that you're a chassid and still eat gebrucks, you could say you're a chassid of the Baal Shem Tev. But, um, but the, uh, um, the, the, the idea was is that the Magid has Talmidim who become very prominent within his own lifetime and even more so after his pass- passing. Um, for instance, we'll go into Bavram of Kalisk. Bavram Kalisker. Uh, was he was part of the reason, according to the another Talmud of the Magid, the uh, the, the, the sorry, the group of Talmidim of the Magid were known as the Helege Chavraya, the holy group, the Chavraya Kadisha, the holy the holy group, the holy uh, uh, um, you know the Chavra of 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 students of the Magid is rich, and of whom there were some of the greatest leaders of uh, the next generation of Hasidus. And and the Alter Rebbe, Shneir Zalman of Liadi, later on spoke about how the Hisnagdus, the opposition to the Hasidic movement, developed, and he partially laid the blame, and he seems to say that the Magad himself laid the blame at the door of Rebbe Ram of Kalisk. And he says that in his in his court in Kalisk, they would do all kinds of funny and extreme things, and they uh, that caused the opposition to gain support because they would they would do they would make uh, he says they would they would have very frivolous dancing and singing in the streets of Kalisk and they spoke uh, derisively of those who studied Torah and the Alter Rebbe writes in a very sharp letter later on in life when he and Rebbe Kalisk were having a very sharp dispute which involved also the money collection to the Hasidic settlement in Eretz Yisrael and uh, a whole other story, which also we possibly can get to um, at another time. But um, but he says that back in 1772, the Magid called a meeting, and he said all the tzaddikim of Volen, all the uh, where the Magid lived, and they all came to Ravna. This is the first and possibly only known gathering in the history of the Hasidic movement up till that point that there was an actual gathering of all the tzaddikim and all the leaders and all the students of the Magad Mizrich in the Magad's court in Ravna that he called in 1772 about how to deal with the Hisnagdas, how to deal with the opposition to the movement. So essentially what we could say is that the development of the movement happened because of the opposition. They had to get together and decide how they're going to respond to it. And he actually advised that they should respond with restraint. They should not 
respond. There's a, a great story that goes along with that, is that while they're all together at this meeting in Ravna, and the Magid is advising restraint, and not to respond to the Cherem, and not to, you know, be drawn into it. So the um, while they're there, the, one of the Talmidim, of course, is the Kedusha Slavier, Levi Yitzchak of Bardichev. And he, and according to this story, which, you know, I'll clarify in a minute um, about the details of this story. Um, so according to the way the story is told, the Rablevi Yitzchak was the rabbi in Pinsk at this time. And he was informed that he was being fired because of his, uh, his Hasidic activity and his Hasidic customs and his Hasidic excitement. And he, they're afraid that he's spreading Hasidic uh, customs amongst the, the community of Pinsk, which was, you know, in Lithuania and in, in Belarus and Rysen, in, in, uh, was, uh, was, you know, they were not so, uh, uh, happy about that. So he was being kicked out of town and they chased his family out of town. And the, because of this, that was already too much. The Talmidim of the Magid, who were all there in Ravna at the time, they decided that enough is enough. They've crossed the red line. And even though the Magad of Mizrich, he, um, he advised them to act with restraint. But this was too much. The honor of the, the Kedusha Slavi is something that they have to stand up for. And they, they decided to respond. And they wrote a letter and a proclamation and a counter-proclamation. And uh, they answered back to the Misnagdim. And the Magid was very, very upset about it, and he came into the room, and he said, because of what you did, you will lose, you're going to lose your reish, you're going to lose your head, which possibly meant that he himself was going to pass away later that year. And he said, but in any, uh, in any uh, time, in any clash, in any future confrontation that you're going to have with those who oppose you, Yad HaChasidim Tiyalel Yoyna, the Hasidim will come out winners. That's what the Magid promised them, but he was pretty upset that they went ahead and did this. It's a great story. There's only one little, tiny little problem with the story is that it probably never happened. And the reason for being so is very simple, is that this took place in 1772. That's when the opposition began, the Hisnagdus began, and of course the Magid has to still be alive. The Pidusha Slaver Bardichev is appointed rabbi in Pinsk in 1776. Four years after the story took place, he first becomes the rabbi, and he remains the rabbi there for nine years, till 1785. And only in 1785 does he leave Pinsk and becomes the rabbi in Bardichev. So, makes for a great story, but if we follow the rabbinic career of the Rebbeinu Bardichev, it makes for an even greater story, because here you have four years after the opposition to the Hasidic movement started, a Lithuanian non-Hasidic town of Pinsk, major city, hires Rablevi Yitzhak of Bardichev, a well-known Hasid and close student of the Magad of Mizrich, to become its rabbi. So that's a great story. The fact that the Gdushas Levi was such a huge Talmud Chacham and Paisik and beloved rabbinic leader that he was appointed rabbi of this town even after the opposition to the Hasidic movement started. That's, so that's, that's really the story that comes out. Um, and which brings to, to the next point is that many of the students of the Magid never established courts like the Rebbe did. There are many that did. Remendela of Etebsk was one of the most prominent students of the Magid of Mizrich. He had a court in Minsk and then in Etebsk. 
And later on in 1777, he organized the first uh, Aliyah Sachasidim, the first uh, migration of uh, a group of Hasidim together with Abraham Kalisker to Eretz Yisrael. He leaves White Russia, he leaves Raisin, and together with 300 Hasidim, they move to to Israel, they go to Tzfas, and then they leave there and they settle in Tveria, which is where both of them are buried. And he attempts to continue to lead the Hasidic community back home in Russia by sending them letters back and forth, which we discussed in the rise of the leadership of the Alter Rebbe, Rebbe Shneir Zalman of Liadi, to to his leadership back in Russia. It's because Remendel of Atepsk and Avram Kalisker were unable to continue leading their community from afar through correspondence, through letters, and through messengers and and uh, you know fundraisers and stuff like that. So, um, but he ended up uh, settling in a very interesting personality. Him and of course Avram Kalisker, who lives on for many years, and in his later years he gets into a um, a dispute with the Alter Rebbe. Um, in regards to his publication of the Sefer Tanya, and then later also in regards to the uh, money collection for the support of the Hasidic community in Tveria, which Ram Kalisker was at the helm of, and Rav Shneri Zalman of Liadi was supposed to be organizing the collection in Russia for on behalf of those Hasidim, and that became a point of contention as well. I mentioned earlier a baron of Karlin um, as someone who led a court of course, you have the, the Rebbe Rabbi Melech, Rabbi Melech of Lezhensk, who is also one of the most prominent students of the Magad of Mizrich, and he's the first one to bring the Hasidic movement to Galicia, when he settles down uh, there, and that uh, along with his, his Talmud, the Chayz of Lublin, Rabbi Yakivitz Chakarowitz of uh, Lublin, who as a young Hasid had also been by the Magad of Mizrich. I mentioned also the Alter Rebbe, Rabbi Shneir Zalman of Liadi, uh, the founder of the Chabad dynasty becomes the Hasidic leader in in uh, Liadi, in uh, first in Liozhna, then in Liadi, in White Russia, and there's he's almost exclusively there. There's uh, almost the Rishon of Polotsk is there for a short period of time in the beginning. He was also a student of the Magid, but it's primarily his his domain. Um, so you have um, most of them. Baruch Hamezhebish who's a great grandson of the who's a grandson of the Baal Shem Tev, and you have the the Zlachever Magid, Rabbi Chil Michal of Zlachev, who was who was also a student of the Baal Shem Tov himself, and later of the Magnum is rich. Uh, you have Rabbi Nachum Nachum Tversky of Chernobyl, the Marinaim, who was also a student of the Baal Shem Tov and later of the Magid. All of these are founders of dynasties. They have a court, but then you have on the other side um, a very interesting phenomenon. You have all these students of the Magid who do not lead courts. I mentioned Rabbi Levi Yitzchak He's a rabbi. He's a community rabbi. He's one of the leading rabbis in Russia at the time. I mentioned Rav Shmelka of Nicholsburg, who's a rabbi first in Poland, and he's a Paisik. He's a huge Talmud Chacham. He has a yeshiva. Um, many, many of the future leaders in the Hasidic movement are actually students at his yeshiva. And together with the future rabbi of Nicholsburg, who's, who's not known as a Hasidic rabbi, he's just known as a rabbi, Rav Mordechai Banet. So Rav Mordechai Banet is learning in Nicholsburg, in the yeshiva, where the Rosh Yeshiva is Rabbi Shmelka of Nicholsburg, who's a student of the Magad of Mizrich. And he's learning, he's studying there alongside Rav Mendele of Rimenov, the future uh, big rabbi. So you have, the, and, they're, and they're studying in a yeshiva as students of Rabbi Shmelka of Nicholsburg. So he's, he's uh, you know, he has, he has he's, he's, he's a jack of all trades, as it were. He's, uh, uh, as a Hasidic rabbi, he's the rabbi of the town, he's a Rosh Yeshiva, 
And it's interesting that because he's in, in Germany, the, you know, the Hasidic movement never really spread there. But you have this great Hasidic personality who was the rabbi there. And what's even more interesting is his brother. His brother is the rabbi in Frankfurt, Rav Pinchas Horowitz. So the Shiva world remembers him because he wrote the Hafla and the Makne, these great authored these great books, Sfarim, written on Shas, and uh, you know, and they're always disappointed to find out that he was a Hasid of the Magad of Mizrich. Um, and then the Hasidic world remembers him uh, as a major Hasidic personality, student of the Magad of Mizrich. And of course the Yekis remember him as the rabbi in Frankfurt. So he also lived in all worlds. And then of course you have the, but again, didn't lead a court. He never had a Hasidic court. These people were community rabbis. And then you have people who were not community rabbis or had a court. People like the Rebbe Reb Zisha, the brother of Rebbe Elimelech of Lezhensk, Reb Zisha of Anapol, who's the, one of the only students of the Magid who actually is buried next to him. When we go, we go, you know, into the same aisle, he's really literally buried next to him, who was a fascinating personality. And, uh, he's, didn't write any, he didn't author any, uh, books of his own. But he wrote the Haskama, he wrote the approbation to the Sefer Hatanya, to the Alter Rebbe, who came to Reb Zisha to get his Haskama, together with Reb Yehuda Leibakayan, who was also an Anapol, and also buried next to the Magid. Um, so they wrote the approbations, the Haskamas to the Sefer Hatanya, and the Rebbe Reb Zisha said, the Sefer Hatanya is so incredible, because I don't know how he took such a great big God and put him into such a small little book, how he was able to fit it in there. Um, so that's, 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 an, and the, the legends that surround the Rebbe of Zisha are literally endless. Um, so many stories and wise sayings and insightful, uh, insights of, of Reb Zisha. Um, one of more, one of more famous ones that he was, when he was on, in his travels in exile together with his brother, Rebbe Melech of Lezhensk, at one point, they were thrown into jail because of some infraction that uh, whatever the uh, the police there or whatever it was that they, they had to be, I don't know, whatever the crime was, I don't recall, or I don't know if it's recorded at all. And they, they came time for them to daven when they were in their jail cell, and they couldn't daven because there was a bucket in the corner of the jail cell that served as the bathroom. So they were not permitted to daven. And uh, the Rebbe the of Milech started crying. And the Rebbe of Zisha said, Why are you crying? If we are not allowed to daven because of the bucket, the, the pail, the, the, which has a foul odor at the side of the room, so then we're doing a mitzvah by not davening. Now, this was the story that was going around now when they started closing the shuls and all that. Um, so, so this... Uh, so... He said, so we're doing a mitzvah, we're performing a mitzvah that we're not supposed to daven right now. This is not what Hashem wants from us. So Rabbi Rabbi said, that's amazing, we're doing a mitzvah. So Rabbi Rabbi Zisha says, if we're doing a mitzvah, then we should, we're, you know, we're students of the Magad, we should get up and dance. So they start to dance and sing that they're doing this special mitzvah, and they start dancing around this pail, where, which was used as the bathroom. And they caused such a ruckus and a commotion that the jail guards came running and they started asking the non-Jewish cell members, what are these two crazy jids doing? So they said, I don't know. They started pointing to the pail and they started dancing and singing. So they said, oh, that's making them so happy, that pail? Then we're going to take them out of this cell and bring them to another room where there is no pail. 
And they brought them to another room where there was no pail and no bad smell, and they were able to go ahead and daven. So that's a great uh, Hasidic story. And one of the most fascinating personalities of the um, of the Chavraya Kedisha, the Helige Chavraya of the students of the Magad, was Rebleib Saras. Very few people in Jewish history are named after their mother, and there's all kinds of reasons given for the fact that Rebleib uh, was named after his mother, Sarah, who raised him. He was an orphan from his father. His father was much older than his mother, and his mother uh, raised him, a special lady and a big tzaddikis. But either way, Rebleib Saras was almost like the Baal Shem Tev. He never had a court. He never was a rabbi. He never had any official position. He would go traveling town from town to town, influencing people, doing um, great acts of chesed to people, and helping, uh, you know, uh, all kinds of... Uh, and and it's hard to find another figure in the history of the Hasidic movement that there's more legends attributed to him than Rebleib Saras. And it's very hard to separate the fact from the, the legend. Um, but uh, he's also a famous personality worth mentioning. There's many, many, many more Talmidim of the Magadim is rich, but we'll stop here. So this is Yehuda Geber with Jewish History Soundbites. You can reach me at Yehuda at YehudaGeber.com. Check out um, Rabbi Manus Friedman uh, at It's Good to Know. And of course, don't forget to vote this coming week. Um, and uh, you can subscribe to Jewish History Soundbites on Podbean. Um, or your favorite podcast platform. Follow us on Twitter at Day Soundbites, and I hope you enjoyed.